0: Blob
1: Talk
0: Radio. Music laws fighting for justice radio. Don't
2: underestimate the other guy's greed. Robert,
0: Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up.
3: It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They
2: see
0: me rolling.
2: They hate them. And
0: trying to get me right Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio Analyzes civil cases in the news Trends in the law And covers all legal current events Each week, Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities Celebrities, experts, business people And so much more Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Straight talk, no nonsense I'm gonna make them an offer again you Now it's time for Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed
4: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening, as we really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. Remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com and let your friends know about it. People can listen to our podcast at, on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Here on Kuziklaw's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed, Robert, and Mark, we analyze the hottest civil cases in the news trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today, we're going to analyze four news stories of the week, and then we will have our expert on. And after that, if we have time, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik's Law's Fighting for Justice. First story of the week, Mark, tell us about this wrongful death lawsuit filed in a crash into a Newton restaurant.
3: Yeah, this is a case where a gentleman by the name of Bradford Kassler lost control of his Volkswagen Tuareg SUV in a town called Newton, Massachusetts. He crashed into several parked cars and then he ran into a restaurant called Sweet Tomatoes Pizza. Seven patrons of the restaurant were injured and two were killed. Um, the evidence indicates that he did not brake before slamming into the restaurant. Uh, Kassler is pleaded not guilty to two counts of criminal charges, one for motor vehicle homicide and the second for operating motor vehicle, so as to endanger. He's been released on his own recognizance. Uh, a grand jury had to meet nine times between May and September of this year before voting to indict him. So now the, uh, the husband of the late Eleanor Mealy, George Mealy, has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Mr. Kassler. Uh, They're in Middlesex Superior Court in Massachusetts. Um, Eleanor was a dedicated volunteer at her childhood church, uh, and she was at the restaurant waiting for a food order at the pizza shop uh, when she and another individual, a 32-year-old, Gregory Morin, were struck by the car when it crashed into the restaurant and they were killed.
1: Um, Nine times for the prosecutors to get him indicted? I heard that grand juries would indict a ham sandwich if the uh, prosecutor presents it to them. them. What took them so long?
3: Well, you know, all that's confidential, so I, I have no idea why I took him that many times. Just oh. that, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's been reported that Kastler has multiple sclerosis, but prosecutors say that their investigation suggests that his medical condition was not a cause of the crash. Um, according to a, one of the court documents, a Volkswagen engineer reported that the vehicle was traveling between 47 and 52 miles per hour when it came to a stop with the throttle in the full-on position at 94%. I guess that's from the black box that the car has. Um, The defense attorney has said that, you know, Castor feels nothing but sadness and sorrow for the victims, but there's been no explanation as to why he did what he did and why he didn't, you know, put his brakes on, and the families for the deceased are looking for answers. Um, well,
1: we hear about these stories where sometimes people get disoriented. It's usually an elderly driver, um, and they the story in, inevitably comes out that they thought they were pressing the brake, but they were pressing the gas and didn't realize it. Is it possible that some sort of situation like that is what unfolded here? Well, it,
3: it is possible, but he's given no explanation that's been made public at this point. Um, there, there are records that show that he had three accidents on his driving record, and he was, had been recently cited for a failure to stop and yield just a couple of weeks before this, like they're calling it the sweet tomatoes crash. So the, 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 wi- the widower, uh, Mr. Mealy, is pursuing a claim for negligence and he's seeking damages for funeral expenses and, and his personal loss. This is a wrongful death lawsuit. In, you know, most lo- wrongful death lawsuits, they follow in the wake of criminal trials uh, using similar evidence but with a much lower standard of proof. Regardless, uh, someone found liable for wrongful death may or may not be convicted of a crime associated with that death. You know, an easy example that everyone is familiar with is the O.J. Simpson case, where he was obviously found not guilty of murder, but he was found liable in a civil trial. Because the standard in the civil trial is, you know, we deal with all the time here at Kuzik is
1: preponderance of the evidence. And what kind of money damages can he recover if he's, if, uh, he's successful, in addition to funeral expenses and things like that?
3: Well, in a wrongful death lawsuit, you, as in, in all negligence cases, there are economic damages and non economic damages. And your economic damages cover things like medical bills, lost earnings, things like that. Your non-economic damages cover things like uh, pain and suffering, uh, uh, inconvenience, uh, anxiety, emotional distress, things like that. So, but here's what's interesting. In um, see, I think there's well, we have a different story where we have where caps come into play with medical malpractice, but in the case for wrongful death, there are no caps, so the damages would be unlimited. So it looks like he has a pretty good case. seems like they, he has a pretty good case. I'm surprised the other person's family hasn't sued, but I'm sure they will uh, be doing so soon.
4: I'm surprised. I am I would think that the other seven people that were injured would also be filing suits. The problem is uh, he probably doesn't have enough insurance to cover all of that. But it, I also find it interesting that I can see why a jury, a grand jury, would have a difficult time coming up with a verdict because it's going to be very hard to prove beyond reasonable doubt that this guy, uh, you know, had his foot on the gas or that this wasn't just a terrible accident. Um, all right, so let's move on. Robert has a story. Um, Liberty Mutual is going to pay a $925,000 settlement. Uh, Robert, tell us about this this uh, this this case.
1: Well. I, I think uh, many of our listeners, and probably us as well, recall these television ad campaign by Liberty Mutual Insurance Company back a couple of years ago in 2014. And they had these stirring shots, probably from a helicopter, of the Statue of Liberty circling around in the background, and Liberty Mutual promoting its automobile liability policies. And the main feature of these commercials was something called accident forgiveness. Which was Liberty Mutual's representation that if you were an insured of Liberty Mutual and you were involved in an accident and the accident was your fault, you know, typically you could expect to see a pretty significant increase in your in your premiums. The cost of your policy would go up a lot because you would had a loss that caused them to have to pay money and Liberty Mutual and some of the other carriers came up with this idea that they would promote accident forgiveness as a way to get people interested in buying their their policies in the hope that if they did have an accident, that was their fault, they they wouldn't get killed on the premiums. Well, little problem with that. Uh, It was estimated that between 70 and 80 percent of California households saw these advertisements. Um, But in California, you cannot offer accident forgiveness. In fact, it's prohibited... Uh, under the terms of Proposition 103, that uh, landmark 1988 initiative passed when people were really fed up with the insurance industry in California, and that uh, initiative uh, prohibited um, basing premiums pretty much on anything other than somebody's driving record. Uh, It was very popular before the enactment of Prop 103 to uh, base uh, automobile premiums on your zip code where you lived, and people thought that this was very unfair. And so as a result, all these regulations were put into effect as to what your premiums could be based on. And the result of those regulations is that accident forgiveness uh, is impermissible in California. So the allegation was that Liberty Mutual was advertising something to you know 80% of the consumers in California that, in fact, their policies could not provide by law. And so the district attorney... I
4: remember seeing that, actually. I like those oh. ads. I remember seeing that. It was memorable. It was, very, it was shocking because I'd never seen anything like it
1: and and it's and it's quite a quite an attractive pitch too to 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 hold out the hope that you could get in an accident that's your fault and then not have your premiums go up so um you know Liberty Mutual had, had good reason for their campaign and I, I think it was quite successful but like it's it's not it's not legal in California. So you know, California has a law, it's called the unfair competition law, the UCLA uh UCL that prohibits people from making misrepresent misrepresentations in, in advertising. And it can be a form of unfair competition because obviously if you can't actually get this in your insurance policy, it's unfair to induce somebody to buy that policy on the hope or belief that they can. So the district attorneys in Riverside and San Diego and L.A. County uh, filed civil lawsuits um, against Liberty Mutual um, saying that this was misleading, it was false advertising, it was a violation of the unfair competition law, and uh, Liberty Mutual apparently has conceded that, has agreed to a permanent injunction that will prevent them from ever mentioning in their advertising in California accident forgiveness, and they're paying a whole bunch of civil penalties and costs of investigation to the district attorney's office as a result of their violation.
4: It seems like a small amount, actually. $925,000 is not much to them
1: you <laughs> Uh, Not very much at all, and I think probably part of the reason in these cases is that it's not really for compensatory damages. The unfair competition law is designed to stop the conduct. The primary tool of that law is to get an injunction to prevent a company or a person from engaging in certain prohibited conduct. That's really the purpose of it. Now, whether there's something out there that might be brewing as far as a lawsuit on behalf of the consumers who may have bought these policies under the mistaken impression that, hey, accident forgiveness would be available to them, I wonder if we haven't uh if there's not another shoe that might be dropped, might be dropped out there concerning a lawsuit by people who are affected who bought the policies.
4: Exactly. Although they probably sent out they probably sent out a notice uh disclaiming that now and saying it's not available or and it would only affect those people who actually got into an accident. That's not a lot. So they yeah. when their premiums go up they might complain and maybe they'll you know, the insurance company will do something for them. All right, uh, let's go on to the next story. Um, Jury awarded an $11.5 million verdict to an Omaha couple uh, whose baby was severely injured uh, during birth. They're claiming medical malpractice. Mark, tell us about the story.
3: Yeah, this stems from a jury verdict in Omaha, Nebraska, where a couple was awarded, as you said, $11.5 million in damages for the birth trauma of their child who suffered severe brain damage during the the child's birth at Methodist Women's Hospital. The parents claimed in their lawsuit that they filed back in 2012 that when their son was born in November 2010, that the delivery was grossly mismanaged by the midwife and the doctor. Breathing problems were left unattended, and the child's health deteriorated during the delivery. Ultimately, uh, they used forceps, improperly causing permanent brain damage that left the child disabled, according to their attorney. Um, Their attorney said that the evidence of the misapplication of the forceps and that the child's electronic patient record was found to have been tampered with were the key pieces of evidence for the jury. Are they still using forceps
1: in extracting babies?
3: Yes. My goodness. (laughs) Now, the attorney for the hospital and doctors that were sued says that the objective medical evidence supports that the child suffered a stroke unrelated to his labor or delivery, but, the, you know, obviously the jury found otherwise. Um, the plaintiff's attorney said that uh, this money will help ensure the child is taken care of for the rest of his life and uh, that the child is, is expected to have a normal lifespan. But on the other hand, the attorney for the defendants has said that they expect the judge to reduce the damages from the $11.5 million Down to the state-mandated cap on medical malpractice damages to only 1.75 million. That's the cap that's been in place, I think, since 2003. Now, in Nebraska, where this took place, um, starting in 1992, caps were were at 1.25 million until 2003. Then it was increased 500,000 up to 1.75. And then a couple of years back, in 2015, it increased another 500000 to $2.25 million. Now, many states across the country have caps for medical malpractice actions, but Nebraska is somewhat unique because their cap covers all damages. Here in California, we have a cap on medical malpractice awards also, but they're limited to $250,000 for non-economic damages. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Um, we were talking about the other story. Now, this non-economic damages are general damages, which includes past and future physical pain, mental suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, physical impairment, inconvenience, anxiety, and emotional distress. So that's is what the Nebraska, applies to.
1: Is Nebraska the only state that caps uh, economic damages as well? The, I'm wondering, cap, is, is that even constitutional?
3: There, there has been a challenge, and it was upheld. But they they cap all damages. So everything is capped at those numbers I was giving you. At, right now, it's 1.75 million. Or actually, it's 2.25 now. But at then, when the child was born, it was 1.75. So
1: so he's never going to get the 11 million.
3: I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know why the plaintiff's attorney is thinking this is going to cover him for the rest of his life if it's going to get reduced. Um, so, you know, here in California, a patient can recover the full amount of medical bills incurred for all p- in the past and in the future, and all past and future lost earnings. You know, but the limit for general damages is only the $250,000. Now, in California, this law came out in 1975, and the amount has never changed. You know, some states that have these caps, they make cost of living adjustments or some other type of adjustments, but in California, it's never changed. You know, in the other kind of cases we handle here at Kuzik, the regular negligence, there are no caps on damages in any, in any way. And uh, over the years, many of the states have debated or passed legislation uh, to create these caps. And You may recall uh, former President George W. Bush, he had proposed a nationwide cap of $250,000, but that never came about. But we've had tort reformers across many states that try
1: to put these caps um, in place, are these caps just in primarily designed to benefit the insurance industry? I mean, who's who's behind these caps? Well, the insurance industry, for one, and the, there's claims that if the
3: caps are in place, medical care will go down. But some of the studies indicate that, or the med, or the medical malpractice rates will go down as well. But um, there was a study that came out in 2011 that medical malpractice rates have actually started going down or plateaued. So that's not a reason any longer.
4: That's amazing. Well, I think that part of it, I mean, the, in, to my thinking, it's about spreading the costs of, uh, of a bad event um, where if you can spread it, if, if there's a cap, it's artificial, and, and, and it's not respecting free market economy. Um, if there's not a cap and somebody really has $11 million worth of damages, and they're going to spend those, uh, medical, those, that money on medical care in the future and what have you.
0: Um,
4: if if it's not capped, then what happens is that cost is spread out over everybody who gets car insurance uh, or medical malpractice insurance or what have you. And, you know, that's much more fair. It's kind of like in, in California where you have the government does something wrong. Like the DMV, I had a, I had a, a case where the DMV, there were actual, you know, some criminals within the DMV that were illegally just wiping out liens on cars and they were being bribed to do so. They were paid $200 each. They were all convicted and they got sentenced to five years in prison. But the lenders who, who made the loans, they had no recourse against the DMV because they have immunity. And my argument uh, was that why shouldn't the entire state of California, all of the people, you know, pay one penny or a fraction of a penny uh, as part of their cost of, of driver's licenses or registration or what have you, to take care of the DMVs, the, the damage co- clearly caused by the people at the DMV. But uh, unfortunately, our legislature gets to uh, determine w- what immunity applies, and of course the, the government always protects the government. Uh, all right, let's move on to Robert's case about Carrie Fisher. Uh, Robert, tell us about this uh, this uh, interesting case.
1: Well, now we have another lawsuit against another c- celebrity, uh, as a result of the tragic uh, drug overdose death of a young person. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that wrongful death lawsuit against Jim Carrey, as a result of that overdosed by that poor unfortunate young girl who had been his one-time girlfriend. And now we have a lawsuit against Carrie Fisher of Star Wars fame, arising from the tragic heroin overdose death of a 21-year-old young lady named Amy Breland. Now, this is an interesting story because Amy Breland had been living in a guest house on Carrie Fisher's estate for several months um, as part of some drug rehabilitation program sponsored by a guy named Warren Boyd. she moved out of the guest house and was living in another, another location as part of Mr. Boyd's, uh, what he called his complex or network of sober living houses as part of some sort of uh, treatment program that he, would, he was peddling. Um, she ended up dying of a drug overdose, a heroin overdose, when she wasn't even in Carrie Fisher's property any longer. Nonetheless, her mother and her survivors have filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Carrie Fisher, alleging that Carrie Fisher is somehow part of Warren Boyd's um, operation and that, therefore, she's responsible uh, for the damages that they have suffered as a result of their daughter's death.
4: That is ridiculous. And why did the judge not grant, the? I assume it was a demur, why didn't the judge not grant that motion? How could she be responsible
1: Okay, well that's interesting. You use the word demurrah. Demur is just a legal term for the defendant who sued coming in and saying, "Hey, if all of these facts are true, it still doesn't mean I'm liable."
0: Actually, this was
1: something called a motion for summary judgment. This is when the defendant comes in and says, "Hey, there's nothing really in dispute for the jury to decide, and since all of the since all of the facts warrant uh, me getting uh, off the hook here, then I should be let out of the lawsuit." So, on the motion for summary judgment filed by Carrie Fisher, she was making the claim that since the young woman hadn't died on her property, how could she possibly be liable? But the allegation was made. Apparently, the plaintiff's attorneys discovered that Carrie Fisher and Boyd had a financial arrangement whereby Carrie Fisher had made her property available to Mr. Boyd as part of his network of sober living houses, and in fact was receiving $10,000 a week versus a percentage of the profits that he was generating in these kind of very unorthodox treatment programs that he was sponsoring, and that, therefore, she was a joint venturer with this Mr. Boyd. And so, therefore, even though the young girl didn't die on her property, she was, in effect, a business partner of this guy, such that now she was responsible for what harm he had caused because whatever drug treatment program he was selling hadn't done anything to stave off this young girl's death.
4: Yeah, but it, it, that doesn't sound like she was a joint venture or a partner. She didn't, have, she didn't design the treatment program. She didn't administer the treatment program. She had nothing to do with that. She, it sounds like she's just a landlord, a very well-paid landlord, but a landlord nonetheless.
1: Well, it, you know, it's a really unfortunate situation. Um, maybe some of our listeners or, or maybe uh, one of you two have, have watched an A&E series. It's called The Cleaner. And it's based on the life of Warren Boyd, who himself is a former addict turned rehab expert. And he, he's on this show, um, it, it's, it's kind of like a, a fiction show, but it's based on, on his life and his experience of treating celebrities and these various scenarios he gets into for people who are addicts. Well, the allegation in this lawsuit by the mother of this young woman is that he's essentially defrauded her, that he sold her over a quarter million dollars worth of treatment uh, protocols involving, you know, screenplay writing classes and acting coaches and, and all of these kind of like kooky, you know, kind of drug rehab type stuff that was costing tens of thousands of dollars a month. And her allegation is that Carrie Fisher is sort of part and parcel of Mr. Boyd's business because she was receiving a percentage of the profits against the $10,000 a month in exchange for making her guest house uh, available as part of the sober living house networks. Now, of course, Carrie Fisher's argument was, yeah, I'm just a landlord. I just was basically renting out a house in the back there for extra money. But apparently the judge... uh, found differently, and uh, denied the summary judgment, and so Carrie Fisher will be facing trial on this allegation early next year.
4: Wow, well, well, I feel bad for her. There must be some facts that we don't know about. All right, uh, you are listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice radio show, and we are now going to move on to our Ask the, ask the ex- Expert. <laughs> Sorry. Ask
0: the it's experts time to ask the experts. Guest. Ask the expert it's time to Ask the Experts. Ask the Experts is a segment each week that features an interview with an expert. Now back to Ask the Experts on Kuzik Laws fighting for justice.
4: Okay, we have with us here Larry Seidlin, who is the state court judge for the circuit court of the 17th Judicial District of the state of Florida. And it, that's in and for the county of Broward County. He was the presiding judge during the infamous Anna Nicole Smith body custody hearing after her death. Judge Larry, please be welcome to our program.
2: Plus, nice How are you doing to today, you guys? Oh, great, great. I'm in Florida. You're in California, but we got the same sun. It's perfect.
4: You know, it's pretty warm here today. Uh, very bright and sunny, but of course we have smog and you have hurricanes. <laughs>
2: yeah, we we are affected by the weather for sure. <laughs>
4: So tell me, what impact do you think that that huge, intense media scrutiny had uh, on the Enya, Anna Nicole Smith case, on the final, uh, as far as uh, how did that
2: affect the final verdict? Well, it, it didn't have any effect on me. I was the the trier of fact. I was the trier of fact and, and, and the trier of the law. It was a non-jury trial, as you as you guys remember, and it was 10 years ago. It's the 10th anniversary coming up Valentine's Day. And it's well, a remind our listeners had, what happened. Well, what happened is she died at the Hard Rock uh, Hotel here in Hollywood, Florida. She checked into room 607 and never left that room. She died of all kinds of combinations of drugs. And um, that her death was shortly after the death of her son who came to visit her in the Bahamas when she gave birth to Danny Lynn, uh, her, her daughter, who's now the model for Guess Jeans. And I, I was there to decide where Anna Nogol should be buried. Should she be buried in L.A., in Texas, or in the Bahamas? And also what was going on, as you, as you all recall, I had to decide who the father was of Danny Lynn. You had right. Josh Gabor's husband was even coming forward and saying he was the father. People, prisoners were writing me from jail saying they were the father. And I had right. to decide that. And also we had to decide whether or not the death of Anna Nicole was it a was it a killing? What what took place? So there were a lot of lot of things going on at the same time.
4: Yeah, that was a mess. I remember everybody was coming out of the woodwork claiming to be the father of the little baby because wasn't it that the little baby is the sole heir of Anna Nicole's estate and there was quite a bit of money in it? Yes, yes. As you
2: remember, she was married to Marshall, and uh, they were contesting that marriage, the, the Marshall's son, and that went on for years, and there was hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. Uh, on the estate case, and also Anna Nicole had a few bucks, and whoever was the father would be the guardian of Danny Lynn. He he or she would decide how that money should be spent. And if you all remember, Larry Burkhead took a paternity test and Danny Lynn, and it it was proven that Larry Burkhead was the father of Danny Lynn.
1: Now, wasn't there some criminal charges that came out of that here in Los Angeles against the manager or something for furnishing yes. the drugs she used?
2: Yes, uh, the attorney general investigated the case, who later became the governor, Jerry Brown, and oh. two doctors and Howard Stern were charged with a bunch of felonies. And the jury came back convicting one of the one of the, um, one of the doctors. And ha- and and found Stern guilty of a couple of felonies, but then the judge, notwithstanding the verdict, dismissed all the charges. Hmm. And the uh, prosecutor appealed that, and the appellate court said, "Wait a minute, send this back to the trial court. We're not pleased with the decision." And then the judge looked at it again, and he um, he again dismissed the charges and therefore there was no finding of guilt against any of those parties for enabling Anna Nicole, helping her get these prescription drugs. So where is she buried? She's buried in the Bahamas. I went to, after the trial, there were certain red flags flying, and I went to the Bahamas, and she's buried with her son Danny in the Bahamas, and they're buried together at the same gravesite.
4: Oh. All right. I want to make sure. I mean, the, the Howard. You, you said it was Howard Stern. It's not. It, it's not the same Howard Stern that we all know, the radio personality, right?
2: No, no, it's not. It's Different one. Stern, okay. Who's who's an attorney, who was right. her manager, a lover, yeah. and 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 cared for her. Yes. And he was. Yeah, wasn't just, there also I, the
1: allegation that he may have been the father of the child?
2: Well, he had. Oh, every, at one time, everybody was he said making he was the claim. father. <laughs> right. He he claimed he was the father and they took a paternity test and it showed that Larry Burkhead was the father. Oh, huh. yeah. okay. And Danny Lynn All now right. lives well, with and Larry we, Burkhead we, now lives with with uh with Danny Lynn. And Danny Lynn's over 10 years old now and she's doing wonderfully. That is
4: excellent. And that's a great way to wrap up the show because we're out of time for this week. Um, Judge, thanks for being with us. And for My everybody, pleasure. this is Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice, and we'll we'll see you again next week.
0: Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at kuziklaw.com. That's kuziklaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.